tuning to Cartridge Audio. My name's Trevor Strunk, Hagelbond on Twitter, and I'm here today uh, with a couple of folks from uh, Means TV. You might remember Means from uh, when we talked last time about the uh, the video game uh, YouTube series they were putting out on on games like uh, uh, like the Division Two, uh, or perhaps you know them from the uh, the very successful uh, friends of the show, um, uh, Brian Quimby and. Uh, Brett Payne uh, of of uh, Street Fight Radio, uh, but today we're talking with uh, uh, I'm going to get both of your names right, uh, <laughs> Derek Murphy and uh, Mitch Zemmel um, of uh, well, why don't you say what you're of, um, guys? I would love to, I would love for you to introduce uh, this excellent uh, topic to the audience. Sure, uh, my name is Derek Murphy, and I am the writer and director of the documentary series. Preserving Worlds, which is coming out soon on Means TV. Uh, Mitchell, go ahead. Yeah, my name's Mitchell Zemmel. I'm the editor and, I guess, cinematographer, mach- machinima uh, <laughs> guy. <laughs> I'm, right. I'm already I'm, already using the term machinima. We are we are in for a good show. Yeah, I'm the <laughs> other half of the project. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so uh, uh, for 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 people who haven't seen it yet, I've and. and Perhaps when this has come out, many more. Well, hopefully, when this comes out, more people have seen it. Um, but uh, Derek and Mitchell let me in on seeing some early, early uh, clips of their work, and um, it it is like I, I like that you use, use the term uh, machinima, Mitch, because like it is like this. Um, uh, I'm thinking like the one I watched the most of, uh, just because it's been like a crazy week, and I set a bunch of time up, and finally today, <laughs> just just like I'm gonna watch this, and like found myself just feeling more relaxed and like calm and happy than I had. So, so thanks for that. Um, that was really nice after like the snow and pandemic stuff and all. Um, but, uh, yeah, it is like, it is like this sort of like, uh, uh, well, for people who don't know, Machinima is like this, uh, almost like a play acting via the game often in, uh, I mean, first person shooters had a lot of it. Quake had a big Machinima scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it it is like this this acting out of the game and almost like in game lecture on uh, the history lecture slash interview slash intervention into archivism and like uh, it's really I mean it's super unique I've never really seen anything quite like it there's like there's the level of you know that kind of like immersive game grumps element but like it's very serious and academic but also like super accessible. Thank you. Wow, that's yeah. it's really nice to hear. <laughs> <laughs> it's what we were going for. Yeah, we wanted to <laughs> make a series that um, would in itself be an act of archival preservation while also mm. being actually entertaining and uh, watchable for people who are not archivists. <laughs> so talk to me a little bit about, like, so I'm, I'm a little familiar with archivism at this point. Uh, well, in part because I uh, got my PhD in literature, but, like, also... Because uh, and video game ar- uh, archivism this way because I've been uh, working on this uh, this book that I've talked about on the podcast a, a couple times and one of the things that keeps occurring is I I have to talk about old games because the the idea of a series the idea of some sort of um, continuity to games a uh, beginning a middle and end always ends up with these like strange projects that a lot of people have never heard of that are are like very much outside of the norm and only exists in like in like distant memories or um as we as as uh, i saw in your um in your uh one of your episodes as like a, a like an archivist uh museum uh, enhanced sort of uh <laughs> recreation 
Um, but games have have this, have this weird thing in the background where like the the stuff kind of half exists, half doesn't exist. Um, so uh, maybe just to like set the scene, can you tell us a little bit about like video game archivism and like what it entails at this moment in time and like why it's a challenge and why it's important? Sure, and it certainly is challenging. And just for context, so you all know, all you listeners out there, <laughs> I uh, I am an archivist. Exists, I swear. <laughs> I am an archivist myself. I actually am working as a librarian right now, but I've got some archival experience and it's the same master's degree. There's a lot of overlap, but, um, so yeah, video game, uh, preservation is very, very challenging. And it's also something where, uh, unfortunately there's not enough resources, uh, dedicated to it in the archival profession as, uh, you would want to see. And, you know, there's a number of, uh, good reasons for that, <laughs> but, um, so uh, in the end, it actually a lot of the action here comes down to hobbyists, uh, mm. what archivists like to call sometimes citizen archivists, <laughs> who are uh, <laughs> you know like cops, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> people who do not have a master's degree in this stuff or any kind of professional background, and yet are doing serious preservation work that really goes a long way. Um, mm. In fact, I would say the vast majority of preservation work on games right now is happening in the hobbyist sphere. Interesting. Um, yeah, good examples of that include, like, emulation, right? I mean, all these emulators, for the most part, are coded by fans, um, starting with, like, stuff like Nesticle all the way on to today. God, um, Nesticle is just such a classic. I, like, I, I yeah. feel like if you didn't have, like, a, a very, very sort of unfortunate and, like, somewhat, uh, uh, you know, hard-to-explain uh, gif of a scrotum on your uh, main screen... <laughs> On your computer, you didn't like you didn't live that life. Like you weren't you weren't there for it. <laughs> Those were the days. <laughs> uh, yeah, although it wasn't exactly accurate, so it's we're a little better off today. <laughs> um, yeah, but so a lot of uh, hobbyist stuff is going on. Emulation is probably the best example. Um, I would say one of the biggest challenges of video game preservation. Uh, there are many challenges, but one is. You know, there's just all the challenges that go along with regular digital preservation. So, you know, maybe you're just trying to preserve something as simple as a digital video file or an old Word document or something, right? I mean, digital files are much harder to preserve over the long term, and they're much more at risk than, uh, say, a piece of paper or a film print, which uh, those, without any particular intervention, if you just sit them in a dark room... Um, <laughs> they'll kind of survive for like decades at least. And if you do climate control, they can survive for hundreds of years. Right. Uh, whereas a digital file needs to be maintained. Uh, it needs to be, I mean, first off, it lives on a digital substrate of some sort, like a hard drive, or perhaps you could put them on like an LTO, like tape kind of format. Uh, you have to constantly be guarding against uh, things like bit rot, like bits flipping, like uh, just files decay. Uh, you yeah. need to keep them into in a format that will be readable, right? So if you just throw this thing on a tape backup, in 50 years, maybe you can't open a docx file anymore. I mean, it's a proprietary format. It's not open. So if uh, Microsoft stops supporting it, then you're out of luck. Uh, and not to mention yeah. a smaller format than doc. Like if there's some tiny company that ceases to exist, I mean, we actually I mean, I've tried to open many a WPS file when I'm <laughs> Oh, my God. And that is... Uh, or in Microsoft Works, I've gotten that a couple of times. Like it, it's mm -hmm. these things that sort of exist, but you know, it, for all intents and purposes, ought, ought not to. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you have formats uh, going obsolete rather quickly. Um, 
you have to have backups in case your hard drive fails or whatever. Um, there's a lot of different strategies to deal with this sort of stuff, but in the end, yeah, digital archives are harder than usual. And then video games on top of that, it's not just like one file. We're talking like a huge multimedia, like a, glom a conglomeration of various like files of different formats that work together in certain ways that need to be organized in a certain way to run. And so you have the challenge of just being able to still run that software on a machine like in decades, like which requires constant maintenance. You need a lot of metadata to go along with that to describe each file, what you've got there, so that people will know like how the different pieces fit <laughs> together, you know, and what they mean. Sure. Yeah, there's a lot that goes into it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like it, it, it reminds me of, um, and I, I've only ever heard of this place; I never have been. But like the the TV and film museum, I think in I think in Hollywood. I'm not. I'm not. It's in California somewhere. It might be in LA uh, or Hollywood proper. I'm not sure how how sentimental they got, but the um, uh, you know, where you can get anything essentially that was on TV or film, uh, but particularly broadcast on TV, and like it will come with not just a, uh, it's not just like, you know, the, the video, it's also like, oh, this was on beta, so like you, there's like a Betamax player in there. Oh, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. you know, we've included like a Laserdisc player in here so you can actually watch this thing that only ever came out once. Um, but like as you say, video games are not just like it's not just like oh good you have a you have a you know a Panasonic uh, a CDI or something like that. Like you you also need um, you also like need a working uh, a working game and in in you know failing that you need some someone who knows what the game was and what all the files were, which is. Um, I mean, as I saw in the new Habitat video, like vanishingly uh, difficult at times. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, they were really lucky that they had some of the original uh, stuff that made up that game just sitting on a hard drive in one of the original developer's garage. So, <laughs> And, you know, there's also the issue of uh, copyright. Like, mm. a lot of these companies that make these games, you know, these are large corporations that are often jealously guarding the uh, actual source code of these games. And so you can't really... Like, it's very difficult to, say, uh, migrate all the files and bring them into new formats that work on new devices when you don't even have access to the source code. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there's that. And then even if you do that, like, oftentimes it's illegal. Like, and so <laughs> institutions can't uh, actually, you know, I mean, archival institutions they need to, for their own self-preservation, be relatively conservative when it comes to, like, intellectual property. <laughs> like, they can't just break the law on this stuff and continue to exist as an institution. Uh, so that's one of the other reasons why this often falls to hobbyists. But in the mm. case of Neo Habitat, they had to go through Fujitsu, the company that still owned the rights to all that stuff, and uh, get their permission. And luckily, they were able to secure it. But if Fujitsu were a little bit less understanding, the project might have never gotten off the ground. Wow. Yeah. Um, I have one small thing to add, even though I'm not the resident archivist. Uh, <laughs> I was going to ask. I was going to ask your thoughts on archivism, though. So this is good. Like this is. Uh, mm -hmm. I was. I was burning. It was a burning uh, desire for me to know this. Sure. Yeah. Well, um, I guess to just give some backgrounds, uh, I know Derek uh, through uh, mutual friends in our hometown. Um, we sort of connected uh, after we'd both gone to college. Uh, but uh, where was I going with that? Uh, my thoughts on archivism um, mostly stem Friendship from... Friendship is a kind of archivism, so it's... it's oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, as Facebook knows all too well. 
Um, <laughs> but yeah, mo I mean, most of what I know about archivism uh, comes from Derek and hanging out with him and talking with him. Um, and on that note, um, I actually refreshed myself with a paper that <laughs> Derek wrote in school on uh, game preservation. And uh, one thing that definitely uh, should be, you know, said here is that when it comes to game preservation, you know, besides having the files and the ability to play them all, like say you wanted to play EVE Online a hundred years from now, you were, you know, studying it and looking at what this game, uh, this very important like cultural um, thing was a um, hundred years from now, you would be in an empty virtual space, basically, right? Like you would, mm -hmm. it would just be like all the unmanned spacecrafts or whatever. Um, but you wouldn't have the experience of what it was like phenomenologically to play the game and to be a player participating in it uh, and the crazy like economic schemes that happen in that game. So one of the important parts of game preservation, uh, especially, is also recording the player experience and mm. the experience of the communities that form around these games. Yes, and this is particularly important with online games. Uh, like, as Mitchell said, I mean, like, that's, there's a, there's a level of, like, performance that goes into the actual play of online games and the social interactions and cultural, like, traditions that are developed among players. Uh, that's a huge part of the story. I mean, it's just a it's a barren world if you don't like remember that. And so part of the uh, ethos of this series we've made is, uh, you know, I tend to think that when it comes to preserving that side of uh, online games in particular, I think the best methodology I've seen is from the realm of ethnography. So we're talking mm. about like writing down um, a description of what it's like to play the game or filming people playing the game, doing oral histories where you talk to people who were particularly enthusiastic players of the game and maybe describing uh, institutions that players created, ways that they organized, uh, their traditions, their lingo and such. Um, having records of all these things, I think that's going to be very, very important to the historians of the future. I mean, if you want to know like more about World of Warcraft and what it meant to people as like one of the biggest early uh, MMORPGs, you don't want just the software. You want to know like what happened in it. Right. Yeah. No, that totally makes sense. And like, so, so, uh, I mean, we're going to mention it a, a number of times because I, I really did admire the video, um, and I want to talk about it. But like the, uh, you know, we're talking about this game Habitat, right? Where and particularly Neo Habitat, which is a uh, like a, a, a resurrection, I guess, for lack of a, a less sort of eschatological term. Um, <laughs> like you know, it it's it's this um, it is this like MMO, and and as you say, like the first MMO, and just like this very weird social space that you know feels somewhat empty even when there are people in it, as part of like just its kind of like strange charm. Uh, but uh, as you uh, point out during the during the video like it it is it really is only something that comes through as important when you include the people in it like when you realize like oh like this is the way people were talking online at this point and here's how it differs from how we talk now and like here's the scene they were all building and how's it different from our online scenes and what does that say about these people 
like it, I'm glad that you said ethnography because it reminds me a lot of that of that discipline, uh, particularly in terms of like, um, I don't know how how wide ranging the discipline can feel. Indeed, yeah, and it you know a little bit of background on NeoHabitat for those listening who might not know about it. So. Uh, as you said, Habitat was the first graphical MMO. Uh, it was a social virtual world. Uh, it came out on the Commodore 64 in 1986, <laughs> and it was uh, online for about two years. Um, it then shut down because it was kind of a beta. So it shut down, mm. and it ended up um, coming back in kind of a new form. They kind of had an offshoot game called Club Carib. And uh, after Club Carib went away, they created a new, very similar game called Worlds Away, which I believe was accessible via CompuServe and maybe even AOL at one point. So oh, that sweet. existed into the mid-90s. <laughs> um, but, you know, Habitat is the first one. It's like the origin, right? And for that reason alone, I mean, it's of extreme historical interest. But also, yeah, as you were saying, I mean, these online games are essentially like each one represents its own uh, way of creating, like, fostering human connection over a distance. So we're talking, like, I mean, I guess if you're, like, thinking about it in terms of, like, Marshall McLuhan style, like, medium is the message philosophy or whatever, like, uh, there are certain affordances given to players uh, in these games that vary from game to game that uh, affect the human interaction within the games, right? Like, I mean, Neo Habitat is very slow, it's mm -hmm. two-dimensional, uh, pretty lo-fi graphics, uh, text chat only. Uh, it takes a long time to move around the screen. Your actions are limited. Um, there's, you know, you can interact by like, you can purchase things with in-game uh, coins you can collect in the game. Um, you can- I like the PVP, the sort of like nascent PVP in there where you had like guns and melee weapons, but you could only <laughs> use them in the rough side of town because too many people were just like <laughs> shooting their friends. That was a great story. I love that. that. Was, <laughs> yeah, that was so funny to me. I didn't know about that before we started talking to Steve. But yeah, it's the thing that's great to me about Neo Habitat is that as it was the first one of these, it was very experimental. Uh, the developers like tried everything because uh, it had never been done before. And mm. one of the things they tried was, for some reason, throwing a robust PvP system into this <laughs> <laughs> social world that had no reason for it. I mean, there was nothing to be gained by doing PvP, but <laughs> you could go buy a gun and shoot someone. Why not? So, yeah, That's it's kind really of funny. Yeah. yeah. I don't think that it actually uh, comes up in the episode itself, but when we were talking with Steve, um, we mentioned how the graphics look very similar to Maniac Mansion. I was just uh, about to say that. It's, like, so similar. Yeah, I think it's... Uh, they either adapted the graphics from Maniac Mansion or it's the same designer uh, who created... Yeah, Lucas... I guess that makes sense being a Lucasfilm. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's really neat. Like, it, it is, It is like... Uh, that was what kind of what I thought of when he said, like, oh, yeah, this is, like, this is what things were like in the 80s when we were gaming. And it's, like... Yeah, it has that weird, like, kind of, like, liminal feel that games like Maniac Mansion have where it's, like, this is a weird experience. Like, this isn't quite... I don't like. I don't feel super comfortable, but I'm very compelled by this experience. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, it had that kind of like, um, mm -hmm. I don't know that that spontaneity to it. Yeah, there is a certain like creepy vibe to it, and there's a lot of uh, there's like a feeling of like you're at the tip of an iceberg, and it's hard to tell how deep it goes. I mean, Steve, and I should say Steve is uh, one of the developers. Uh, responsible for reviving this game. This uh, was a collaboration with the 
original creators of Habitat, a few different developers they got on site, including Steve, and the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, which was kind of uh, funding and helping to carry out the project. Uh, but anyway, um, oh, and also I should say you can play New Habitat online in your browser right now, which is very impressive. This is the first time an online game uh, has been revived and made publicly accessible online in this way. So, uh, you know, we had yeah. to profile it. But um in regards to how creepy it can be, I mean, Steve was showing us with his developer powers. Uh, the original Habitat included, like, secret areas that you needed a, a developer to take you to, and one of which was uh, Avatar Hell. If you're uh, misbehaving, the developer can <laughs> transport you to hell, and it's just this, like, zone that you can only get to by misbehaving. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the same as jail? Because I, I liked the jail the jail setting as well. Yeah, he um, showed us a jail. Yeah, he said it starts with you going to Avatar Jail, and other players can walk right into the jail and see you in there. But okay. then if you're, if you're even worse than that, they send you to hell. Yeah. I I really liked that you could hit F7 and the and the description of the place was just this is jail. Yeah. <laughs> you are in jail. Yeah. That's great. Uh you kind of see it in the episode like we don't point it out specifically, but there is another like crazy just like out there thing admins could do um which was smite a player and <laughs> to just set the scene like you wouldn't even be within sights of the admin uh you know, necessarily, but you would just see a text box come up above the screen that says, like, the clouds form above you. <laughs> a hand comes down from the sky, and, like, this giant hand is, like, pointing its big finger at you, oh, no. zaps you with lightning, and you turn into just, like, a skull and, like... And a pile of ash. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> and just... Oh, to... <laughs> I think that's how you get to Avatar Hell. I think then you wake up in hell. Yeah, it must be. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, I mean, honestly, like, I, I know no mods, no masters and all, but, like, uh, um, there is something there's something very effective about that. Um, yeah. And Steve did say that uh, for the most part, like, that sort of thing was really done in jest. He said that it was very rare and perhaps never did anyone actually do that stuff to enforce real discipline. It was, like, you know, really goofy the whole time. It seemed like the original, like, 80s uh, community in Habitat was rather uh, tame. Like, usually not too malicious. People didn't get too uh, mm -hmm. too sinister in there, it seems like. Yeah, and actually, like, there, there's a ton of stories about these places, but I don't want to I don't want to direct uh, you to. Um, and I, I have other questions that aren't about Habitat. But so, like, I want to. Mm -hmm. Want to get to those, uh, and I will have to police myself as far as that goes because <laughs> I find this just fascinating. But um, you know, one of the uh, I, I'm just interested. Like, there are a bunch of stories told in in the episode. Um, what is like? What is one of your favorites? Like, what is what is one of the ones that really stands out to you as like an interesting story from Habitat? Sure. Um... And and you each can give one. I don't I don't mm -hmm. want to leave either of you out. Well, I am thinking about one. Um, there was a uh, treasure hunt they tried to do. So they wanted to have a special event that would uh, get everybody like who played Neo or who played Habitat regularly uh, involved in this special event where they did a big treasure hunt. Uh, they called it the Denulsi Island Treasure Hunt. They created a whole new area of the game, this Denulsi Island. They left a bunch of wow. really uh, obscure clues uh, throughout the world of Habitat, um, like very hidden stuff. They were basically trying to do like an ARG before ARGs. Like they just had all these little riddles and they wanted to 
not uh, have... content with creating an MMO. They need to make a, a new genre that would be exciting afterwards. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So they were thinking this is going to take players weeks or months to solve, and it's going to be this really fun thing where everybody's working together to try and figure out where the buried treasure is. And apparently, like, the day that they went live with this thing, within the first hour, someone solved it. <laughs> it was like all, classic. all their months of work were just for one person's enjoyment for one hour. <laughs> oh, that's such a classic story. That's like, I feel like every dev now would have a story like that, where it's just like, yeah, we worked forever, and you know, some person out, like, who turned it on in the first hour, like, uh, figured it out instantly or, like, was able to access the code. And, yeah, yeah. That's, that's so good. And it was the first time that kind of thing had happened, you know? They must have been, uh, their heads must have been spinning. Well, you think, I mean, like, you think about doing something like that in a D&D space or, or like, a tabletop space, which is, mm -hmm. I mean, where you'd, where you'd have it otherwise. And you're just thinking, like, man, this is going to be so good. Like, no one's going to be able to figure out. I'm, like, the best GM of all time. Um, and, and it's like, you know, in a, in a tabletop space, you know, you probably, or DM, excuse me, uh, in a tabletop space, you're probably thinking like, yeah, it's going to take a long time and it probably would because you can act on the fly and change things around and people are getting too close, but it's kind of a different animal when it's in a game. Yeah. 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 When your audience is like anyone who can log on to this thing yeah, from around right. the world. I've done enough DMing to have that exact experience. <laughs> <laughs> that must be really frustrating. Yeah, I, at this point, I've I've toned down the number of puzzles that there are, and just like increased the number of NPCs because that's what I found like my players like to do. It's just like, what's this guy? Uh, he's, <laughs> he's an accountant. It's like, oh, that's cool. Where does what's he doing here? And it's like, no. <laughs> he's a he's a dire accountant. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Mitchell, what's your what's your what's uh, your fave? Yeah, I. I for Neo Habitat, the story that really popped out to me actually was uh, the story of the players who were essentially like printing money. Um, the way Neo Habitat's like economy worked is, you know, you had like coins, you had gold or money um, that you could purchase items with, inventory stuff for to decorate your uh, apartment, whatever. And uh, in addition to these. Vendroids, like these vending machines where you could uh, buy stuff. There was also a pawn shop where you could trade stuff in for credits. And nice. a couple of players found an exploit where I guess there were specific Vendroids that sold things at a certain rate that you could trade them in for a higher amount. Um, and they just did this infinitely. And just immediately just like became like the sultans of the land. <laughs> they completely broke the economy of the game. Exactly. That's really good. Um, yeah, the line went way up. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the developers talked to them, like figuring out, like, how did you do this? And when they explained it as a you know, reward, uh, the developers allowed them to keep their money. And what's a really happy ending to this story is the players who enriched themselves this way ended up using that money uh, to sort of uh, fund and like be benefactors for different kind of like in-game events, charity things, you know, like oh, cool. ha have a coin reward for trivia night, etc. Oh, um, that's nice. Yeah, it's like very sweet. And, you know, not to get too much into current events, uh, I do like the kind of parallel between like 
a bunch of nobodies, you know, found a, a secret way to like make a bunch of money. <laughs> <laughs> Except and, and these guys also aren't even like a weirdo like finance uh, like Christian Bales on Twitter. Yeah, it's or on uh, Reddit. So much more pleasant. Better. Yeah, yeah. A, lot, a lot better people <laughs> ended up uh, profiting off of it. Um, so yeah, it was. Uh, that's cool. Yeah, I, I I gotta say my favorite of the stories in there was the the priest who got really into it. Oh yes, the Church of the Holy Walnut. <laughs> yeah, and they the, so you yeah, just like he was like so into the game that they they made him a church, the Church of the Holy Walnut, and he like he would get up there and, and do little sermons and stuff. It's like it's such a it's such a nice like combination of that kind of like goofy you know outdated uh, flying spaghetti monster style. Um, skepticism and then like also just someone just having fun with those guys like oh you want to call my church the church of the holy walnut that's cool like i just love this game i'm i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna like hold sessions here uh is that cool like yeah no as long as we can rib you a little bit yeah like, it's, <laughs> it makes you it's it's such it's it's so nice like it's such a it's a very sweet uh mm-hmm. it's a very sweet story habitat like it, it it just like there's i'm sure there were people in there that weren't great there always are but like you know it, it it feels very sweet, the whole story about it. And of course, like that makes its revival all the better. Yeah, yeah. There's something wholesome about that game. And I get the sense that even people who are going in there now are kind of uh, carrying forward that sort of uh, feeling of the game. Like, I, I doubt you would encounter someone like, you know, trying to kick your ass in the game or something. <laughs> Not a lot of griefers in... Uh... Neo Habitat? Not that I've seen, but then again, you know, there's not that many people in there at the time. Um, well, fair enough, yeah. One thing that's nice is they have a Slack channel that you can go on, and there's a little bot that tells you whenever someone logs into it, so you can kind of keep tabs, and if you see that someone's logged on, you can log on and go and say hi. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. It's kind of like a way of, uh, of uh, making community even a little easier. Definitely, and they're talking about doing a thing they're calling The Habening soon, where... Uh, I think it's on Sundays they're going to start encouraging people to all log on all at the same time so that, you know, you know that if you get on there at this time of the week, like, you're going to at least be able to see people and interact with them. That's cool. Yeah. So let me ask you something. Um, and, and I want to get to the politics stuff last. So this this question is my is maybe maybe my last non-politics question. We'll <laughs> see. We'll we'll uh, we'll leave it open. Sure. But the um, you know, one of the things that I find and this is this is of course like i it's easy for me like it's easy for me because i get to kind of talk I, i've i it's easy for me in an unfair way because i have made the podcast topic so broad uh, at this point that i can talk to whoever i find interesting and it, it makes it quite easy uh, when i'm not writing a book to put out um pretty consistent episodes because i can always find someone who's interesting right <laughs> like that's that's no problem there's always someone out there doing something interesting like i've i've had people on who are you know, uh, fans or modders or whatever. Um, but when you have something like like what you're doing, like this uh, this sort of like very, I, I won't say strict, but this sort of like very um, uh, careful um, archival element, or like you know, there are people who do podcasts on like particularly um, bad games or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, all this stuff exists as like a. Um, as like a, a, a part and parcel of the podcast, a YouTube, whatever economy. And I think the hardest thing about it, like the most difficult thing about it is making these choices as to topics that seem uh, sincere. Like, you know, you can have a bad video game podcast and if you're doing Sonic 05, 
it's all of a sudden like okay like Where'd you get the? Did you like? Did you look at like a top ten list of bad games? Like what, what, what are you up to here? Mm-hmm. But at the same point, it's like, well, it is a bad game, so why can't I play it? Like, there's, it is such a hard balance, right? To get this like authenticity that that really like has to exist in the gaming sphere to get viewers, but then at the same point, like, have something that feels, you know, personal and and, and like something that you chose. So I'm wondering, like, you know, based on what I've seen, that like the the things you choose have there's an accessibility to them. Like I recognize some of the topics you were covering, but also like a sort of like, I don't really know a lot about this. I'm super interested to learn. It seemed like a good set of choices. So I'm curious, like, how did you, how did you come to make those choices? Like, how do you come to, to figure out what comes on your show? What you, what you cover at, at any given point? Sure. Yeah. So, um, just so people know the games we covered were, um, world's chat, um, ZZT, uh, Mist Online, Uru Live, Neo Habitat, um, Second Life. Did I say Doom? Doom is one. Yeah. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> Doom and ZZT were the ones that I recognized. Um, I missed Uru um, online. Uh, mm-hmm. I, uh, I recognized as something that I've heard a lot about, but did not have any experience with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually didn't really have any experience with that game myself before we made this series. Uh, I had played a bunch of the Mist. I mean, I love the Mist games, but I never played Uru. But mm-hmm. um, so the uh, selection of these games, I guess each one had its own reason, really. But um, so we started with World's Chat, which was, <laughs> believe it or not, uh, we. So the World's Chat was the pilot for this series, and we actually recorded an interview within World's Chat that. That entire interview that makes up that episode was recorded in 2015, and um, it was recorded for a feature film that Mitchell and I were working on called Sarasota. Yeah, it was called Sarasota Half in Dream, and it's a surrealist nature documentary um, and situationist uh, in many ways. But uh, we filmed that scene. It thematically kind of had to do with the rest of the movie, but uh, in the end, it ultimately didn't have enough to do with the movie, so we cut it out. Um, and But the material was strong enough that we wanted it to uh, survive outside of being cut, so uh, we made it into a short film and put it on Means TV. Well, we sent it to Means TV, and they liked it, so they put it up. And <laughs> um, then uh, it did pretty well, so we pitched a series to Means TV based on that, where we'd look at other games. And so now World's Chat is episode uh, one or zero, I guess. And then the other games, we all recorded those interviews earlier, uh, well, in 2020, basically in summer of 2020. So the games we chose were based on, like, you know, A, I find this game very interesting. Uh, like ZZT, I played when I was in like middle school and high school. A lot of a lot of the fan games. You know, I should say the overarching thing is each game had a big popular uh, fan community. Okay. Each, each game cannot be understood without understanding the player culture. Um, because even though ZZT and Doom, you know, ZZT is not online at all. Doom, you can play online, but that's not like you know, the main way people play Doom. Um, Typically in bo- not, no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for a certain group of people, for like uh, uh, PvP, like Deathmatch, I Yeah, guess, Deathmatch but, was yeah. big, but mm-hmm. but yeah, we didn't really even cover Deathmatch, though. We covered uh, fan wads, and in ZZT oh, we covered... Okay, yeah. yeah, and in ZZT we covered fan-made ZZT games. Uh, both of those games, ZZT and Doom, shipped with, uh, shipped with incredibly robust level editors that allowed you to create 
essentially full-on like games uh, without any real programming experience. And so both of those led to extremely vibrant and popular uh, player cultures creating all their, like essentially what I look at as folk art. Like mm. this is regular people, not professional creators who are creating things that speak to them uh, using the tools available to them. You don't need money to make these games. You don't need any particular programming expertise. And uh, there's no market incentive. There's no way to make a profit off of this stuff either. So really, you're talking pure self-expression from normal people, which is <laughs> something you don't see every day. Uh, so right, yeah. yeah, so that was why we chose those two games. And then the other games were all uh, social virtual worlds that uh, I felt had pretty interesting player cultures. and. Uh, you know, also had people that we knew that we could talk with about it that we knew would be compelling. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, I <laughs> I have something to add on to that. Um, you, mm -hmm. you never have to apologize for adding on. That, oh, okay. is, that is okay. Don't worry. <laughs> well, if I may. Um, <laughs> so, right. Um, absolutely with each of the games or software that we cover, the human element uh, is really important for us. And when it came to, in addition to Worlds Chat, which we recorded six years ago, the five new ones that uh, we recorded uh, last year, uh, we knew that each of them, in addition to having that angle of humanity, uh, you know, interwoven into the game, uh, each game also had a little something different to add, to bring to the table. So with ZZT, a lot of it focused on the Museum of ZCT, which is this amateur, um, you know, fan-run uh, collection of... Basi it's basically the world's largest repository of ZCT games, and the community's <laughs> largely centered around that, right? That's really um, cool. Yeah, and, like, with Doom, we look at a lot of... Uh, we talk with Liz Ryerson, who is great at, you know, looking at basically these Doom maps from a design theory angle about how the way the players created the maps was relevant to, or the way the players created the maps was indicative of how their world is built, the world that they live in, their own reality, right? Interesting. I've had Liz on the show. That sounds very much like something, uh, like a direction she would go. That's yeah, cool. she's she's on point with that stuff. Yeah. Um, and, you know, et cetera. With Habitat, the, obviously the main thing was how do you bring a game back from the dead in this way and what sort of legal obstacles did they have to go through and what were they able to do to get past, you know, the certain copyright issues uh, and really do this like never before realized undertaking. Yeah, there's sort of a, a preservation related uh, angle that we took on each of these to a greater or lesser extent, depending on the episode. Neo Habitat is one of the most like archival preservation focused episodes simply because we were covering a revival of a dead game, but um, yeah, it you know, totally it totally appealed to me in that way because it just like I guess probably the things I think about a lot. It you know, 
I definitely, you know, I will praise it on its own merits, but uh, understand it's also just like absolutely my cup of tea for anyone listening. So, you know, if, if, if that one doesn't grab you, the other ones probably will. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Um, with Uru, an angle we took was uh, fan servers. So a lot of online oh, cool. games. Yeah, a lot of online games, eventually the servers will shut down because the game is, you know, no longer making a profit and the company can't afford to or doesn't want to keep running the servers. So... In a lot of cases when that happens, fans will take it upon themselves to create their own servers that are unofficial. Uh, they are usually uh, very illegal, and sometimes they'll get cease and desist letters from the companies. Unfortunately, very illegal. Highly illegal. Highly illegal. This happened to uh, <laughs> this happened to City of Heroes famously like a year oh, or two yeah, ago. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a City of Heroes fan server that the company... Uh, required that they shut down, unfortunately. But with Uru, it's actually a great case of a developer being completely understanding and supportive. Uh, Cyan Worlds, as you might expect if you're familiar with them, were totally cool with fan servers. And they actually uh, kind of de facto supported the fan servers after they started oh, wow. up. And then uh, seeing the fan passion for Uru, they ended up recreating the Uru servers and making them freely available. And uh, they oh, don't wow. make any, they make no money off of it. Like they, uh, they have a little donation page on their site. That's like, Hey, if you like the Uru servers we're running, uh, kick us a few bucks to help us keep running them. But Man. yeah, it's, it's cool. You don't see companies doing that very often. <laughs> no, not at all. Like I, I, that's really cool. Like it, it seems like, I don't know, I guess, I guess one of the, maybe one of the risks, but also one of the really interesting things about, um, thinking about games and archival stuff is it, it just it seems like there's so much goodwill within it right like it seems like such a nice uh scene yeah uh, i'm sure like i i imagine that's not always the case i imagine there's like not nice parts of it too but like there seems like there are more uh happy stories than unhappy stories i'll say it that way i mean it's a noble uh pursuit right i mean this is essentially people who are volunteering a ton of time and often this stuff requires a lot of expertise as well so these are highly skilled people dedicating a ton of time to something that doesn't really personally benefit them but benefits the wider community and you know you could really argue humanity in general i mean we're talking about preserving like very significant like works of art for the future we're basically taking our present day and past and uh carrying it forward so that people many, many years from now can learn from it and also mm -hmm. enjoy it. So it's not surprising to me that the people carrying these things out tend to be uh, pretty nice. <laughs> it's a that nice thing sense. to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so is this like, do you, do you guys consider this like a, a, a please don't, don't feel like you have to uh, answer this in any sort of nice way. You can, you can tell me off for putting you in the spot of, of making you say this, but do you, uh, do you consider this as sort of like a uh, a season kind of like approach? Like, is this a first season of the show that you've you've produced, or a first run of it, or something like that? Um, like, should people people shouldn't expect this to come out every week? There's a lot of work that comes that goes into this. Uh, is it, it is obvious from the beginning? I'm assuming this is not like a you know once a week sort of thing. Ah, uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, I mean we twice a week then. Great, <laughs> this is cool. <laughs> yeah, you guys are gonna love it. Um, <laughs> just the quality, just like tanks <laughs> after the first six episodes. Um, yeah, I mean we we did we got greenlit to do these five new episodes in May, I believe. 
and um, had them in a more or less state of finishedness in December. Uh, mm. <laughs> so, uh, okay. yeah, that was, I guess, sort of the, the timeline. And, like, that's absolutely the fastest Derek and I have ever worked <laughs> on anything together. It's incredibly fast for us. Uh, for context, the feature we made, Sarasota Half and Dream, took us about five or six years to make. So, <laughs> I mean, it, it's incredibly, like, I, w- I will say, like, for people who are, are sort of, because I was expecting one thing when I came into them. I was expecting something I'd like. I, I'll be, I won't lie. Like, I won't say, like, I expected this to be garbage and it turned out good. <laughs> like, don't worry. Uh, but, like, you know, I expected to enjoy it. But what I didn't expect was the sort of, like, way that it was... Um, I don't know, the way that it was structured. Like, I, I didn't expect the sort of, like, it, there's a very graphical quality to it. It is, it is extremely well directed and produced. Like, there's a, there's a sense of, I don't know, there's, like a, there's a clear sense of, um, I don't know, choices that are being made in terms of the framing and stuff, which I feel, you know, I don't, I don't want to say that, you know, I, I have any creators in mind when I say this. Like, I'm not trying to cast any sort of specific aspersions, but I do mm-hmm. feel like in video games it is kind of easy to slack off a little bit and be like, yeah, like, you know, you know, video games, here's like, here's, (laughs) here's a, here's a clip. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Whereas in your stuff, it it really is like, there's a, there's a very clear sense of, okay, we are, we are framing this shot in this way. We are, you know, the, the conversation we're having with this person has to like approach has to be approached this way because like that is, you know what what we are talking with them about like when when you're in the church for instance in the in the new habitat video um it is it is this case where you know the guy gets up there and he's like steve gets up there and he's like yeah let me let me do my best job of giving a sermon and like you frame the the conversation as best you can within mm-hmm. the within the video game as like this sermon and it it works like it's it's this great directorial choice and it feels very um, I guess, for lack of a less corny word, like it feels very intentional. Like it feels like a, a choice, right? Um, so yeah, no, it, it makes total sense to me that it would take quite a while because it's clear you're not just like tossing stuff up there. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I really. <laughs> yeah. That's very kind of you. I certainly appreciate it. I guess yeah, like, yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, the whole thing is filmed within video games, and um, we were kind of going off of that tradition of like machinima that we talked about earlier, uh, in particular. We were very inspired by a feature film from uh, the early 2000s called Avatara that Mm. uh, is not well known. I happened to come across it while I was doing research for... uh, Mitchell mentioned I wrote a paper. I had this paper published while I was in grad school in a digital digital preservation journal. uh, And as I was researching that, I was looking at a project... um, at Stanford called uh, How They Got Game, and also known as, uh, they had a similar project that was related to it called Preserving Virtual Worlds, where they were collecting a lot of video related to game preservation. And as I was going through their collections, I came across this film, Avatar. It was filmed entirely within an old social world called um, On Live Traveler, which was unfortunately it doesn't exist anymore i wanted to do an episode about it but um right now it's shut down but i'm actually i managed to work myself into an email thread with the people who made it who are trying to get it revived so uh if we do ever make some more of these uh maybe we'll make one about that if it gets off the ground but uh the thing that's crazy thing that's crazy about that game is that um you know it's from the 90s but the avatars in it are just big disembodied heads and 
there's voice chat in it in the game and when you're talking the mouths of the avatars move in accordance with your voice whoa Um, yeah it's crazy it's very ahead of its time they have some kind of algorithm that makes the mouth move and it's relatively convincing so this avatara film was uh, a feature documentary filmed entirely within that game and they interviewed various people who were like uh a big part of that community about their experiences with it. It's fantastic stuff. I, if you like our series, I strongly recommend you check that out as well. So that was a big inspiration. But we've also been very inspired by, you know, I'm a big, like, documentary uh, buff. And, you know, I mean, I make documentaries, so I guess it makes sense. But um, <laughs> we were really inspired. Oh, strange. Yeah, weird, right? But uh, so we were really inspired uh, by Chris Marker, the famous leftist French documentary filmmaker from the second half of the 20th century. He actually created Second Life Worlds um, around the early 2010s when he was like 80 something years old. Oh, wow. Yeah, he had a YouTube channel. He was very like, he kept up with technology in his advanced age. And that's uh, neat. Yeah, and what's really neat too is that his Second Life sim, they call it, the world he made, is still online and you can visit it. And in fact, in the Second Life episode, our intro and outro was filmed uh, within a bar that he created in Second Life. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's great. So yeah, Chris Marker was a big inspiration. And also Agnes Varda, uh, who was a friend of his, who uh, created a lot of great documentaries where she is incredible at capturing like just human connections. And I really love this documentary of hers called... um, daguerreotypes that is uh not one of her more well-known ones i believe it was filmed in the 70s and it's just her going all up and down the street she lives on and filming interviews with uh all these various people that she tends to encounter in her day-to-day life like she goes to the cafe she likes to go to and Mm. she like films a magic show there and talks with people who work (laughs) there she talks with the baker that she gets her bread from she talks with her neighbors, all this stuff. And these are just regular people. And you're really like, she's great at like making this quick connection with them and really giving you a sense of their personality. And so when we were making this series, I wanted that to come through for everyone that we talked to. I wanted to like really get their personality to shine through. So you feel like you're getting to know this person and make a connection with them. And I also yeah. wanted to give you that sense of the community of each game, like really get to know the ethos of each community. That's cool. Um, I, I, this is the lamest way of doing this, but uh, uh, Mitchell, I, I would like to hear, did you have any other uh, like elements of, of inspiration there? Because hearing, um, hearing those one made me want to hear more. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, first, I just want to say I'm glad that you saw that choices were made. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 that like... I think to anyone who wasn't like, uh, you know, who hadn't like been uh, involved in in making content online or graduate school or both, uh, might imagine that is ironic or or uh, cynical, uh, but uh, or not cynical, uh, insincere. But uh, I know how sincere that is, actually. So yeah. yes, absolutely. No, absolutely. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I know when I was, you know, in the game with Derek and the interviewee. Um, you know, Derek and uh, the guests would obviously be focused on both the gameplay and also, you know, talking about their experiences in the game, doing the interview itself. So while that was going on, I was absolutely trying to, like, get 
basically like three different categories of footage of things that we could work with in the edit. Uh, the first being the actual gameplay experience, um, what it's like to be playing the game, watching um, Derek and the guest, you know, be in the game and uh, play in it. The second would, I guess, be the character sort of portraiture on the guests themselves. Um, you know, it, when I was in a documentary class, they talked about when you have a guest on a documentary, they're generally either going to be an expert or a subject. And an expert is someone who can speak with authority on a subject, a topic, some sort of intellectual information. They can be that sort of authority figure that you trust to give you the statistics and interpret them. And then a subject would be somebody whose lived experience is what you are recording and capturing and uh, hearing about from them, right? Mm -hmm. And generally, you don't mix the two. But for our series, we made a very deliberate choice uh, before we began filming that we wanted to have our guests sort of fit both roles, right? Like, they talk with authority on the game and the culture around the game, but they're also a member of it, so we get that personal aspect. We get a bit of their personality. So it was important to get some footage that kind of frames them like a, like a subject uh, in a documentary that you're following around their day-to-day -day life. And then the third would be, like, I guess basically like Nat Geo style stuff. Okay. <laughs> to, um, you know, in a sense, because I wanted to get footage that would show the games in ways that players would not naively experience generally. Um, so, like, you know, like you said, when you're playing a game, it's very easy to just, you're playing the game. You're not trying to like line up a shot or whatever. You're trying to beat the objective, walk into town, uh, you know, level up your character, do whatever. You're doing the game. You're not, uh, you know, doing like these like drone shots, you know, flying yeah, over yeah. spaces and stuff. Um, with games like Neo Habitat and ZZT, it's always a fixed frame, so you can't really do that. You can't have that like cinematic kind of scale. Um, like you're filming like Middle Earth and you're just like flying over in your helicopter. Um, but you can... I did think that, that it lacked a bit of Peter Jackson. I, like I, <laughs> yeah. I was wishing there was more of that. Yeah, I just wanted to like zoom out so you could see like the entire like tiled uh, world. <laughs> um, but due to technical limitations. No, um, you know, even if we couldn't do that, you, there were still choices you can make in the edit. So with like Neo Habitat, we made an effort to get B-roll of Derek and I, um, like, you know, doing things in the game that would be a bit more visually interesting. By default, there's no idle animations in that game. You're oh, right, just kind of yeah. standing there, um, and not a lot is like you could mistake it for a JPEG, right? So we tried to find ways to like be performative, to have our characters uh, kind of emote. be expressive. Yeah, emote. Um, so, like in that church scene, for example, uh, when Steve is giving his sermon at the altar, um, you know, I tried to get like my avatar to like bow down uh, yeah. and sort of like participating in it. So, 
Um, I liked how I liked how also like there was there were like props through the whole thing. Like one of you was always carrying that skull, like <laughs> mm-hmm. stuff like that. Like the, the, I think that's the thing, right? Like I, I, when watching like a say a let's play, and I, I I enjoy let's plays. Like I shouldn't say like I, this isn't me saying like one one thing is like better than the other mm-hmm. as far as like entertainment goes, but like or like you know uh, more virtuous, let's say than the other. Better is sort of a harder thing, but the the like. I feel like the the quality of Let's Plays and the lack of intentionality is basically just because, I mean, you're playing the game. It doesn't really matter that the game looks one way or the other. It doesn't matter if, like, during my playthrough of, I don't know, Clock Tower 2, that, um, you know, my, my guy is, my avatar is looking uh, cool or not cool or, like, wonky or a glitch happens or something, whereas... If I'm trying to say something about Clock Tower 2, it, it absolutely matters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah, really, like, I think what's fascinating about this is the the, the kind of, like, distinction that you have to make between uh, gameplay and aesthetics, which um, is absolutely going to be my last question to you, so don't worry. Uh, I will get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before that last question, I wanted to ask you guys, um, and I've almost got you here an hour, so I have two more, and then I'll, I'll let you go. Okay. Yeah, no um, So the first is... Um, a question that I am familiar with, uh, and, I, and I have my own answers to it, that hopefully, um, you know, however many episodes of the show exist have uh, helped people understand. But um, I'm interested in your answers. Uh, so one of the things that I feel happens a lot with video game work, especially video game work that is sort of ambitious, is you end up getting asked the question, like, well, why are you doing this on video games? Like, what is the point of covering a video game here when there's like plenty of other art to, co- to cover. Um, I think one of the, the first episodes that people listened to of this show uh, probably was um, uh, I interviewed uh, Chapel Trap House's Matt Chrisman about this. Uh, you know, he took the position that, um, you know, video games were sort of like degenerate art. There wasn't really much to, <laughs> to, to get from them. My position was there probably was. And, you know, we just we ended up disagreeing, but it was a good discussion. But like that's a, I feel like in a lot of places where you're doing serious work on video games, that is the first thing that you have to answer. Like, what are you what are you doing here? Like, why are you doing this? Are you trying to pull one over on me just by like having fun with something that you enjoy? And even more so when you say there's like a political valence to it, which mm-hmm. in publishing on means you are kind of implicitly saying since the 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 the. the, the the central sort of mission statement of means is is political, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I'm wondering, like, um, how do you sort of understand your work to exist as like a leftist project? And I guess, you know, to a lesser degree, like, how do you defend um, video games as proper subject matter for like leftist inquiry? Sure. Um, it's a big question, but no, but yeah, always. I'm ready. Always. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. Uh, there's a few different angles you can take on this. I mean, first off, so our features on Means TV, uh, our short was, that became this series is on Means TV, and this series is on Means TV. They are a worker-owned collective, a co-op, right? And by the very nature of their existence and the way that they're structured and run, they are a leftist project. I mean, yes, they're the only uh, co-op streaming service, and the only worker owned streaming service. So everything I've seen on there has also been like, I know my, my friend Donald Borenstein has some work on there, which is really interesting and about like, you know, uh, worker co-ops and, and, and strikes and, and union drives. Uh, the, the people I talked to before left trigger 
interested leftism in video games. Of course, Brett and Brian take a pretty leftist perspective. So, like, it seems it seems to me from the outside. I haven't worked for me, and so I don't know for sure. But like, it seems to me that that is also, uh, you know, to to coin a phrase again, like an intentional choice. It is, yeah. And, I, you know, I mean, sometimes people will look at um, a less overtly, uh, seemingly uh, political piece on Means TV and be like, you know, what the hell? There's not a bust of Stalin in the mise-en-scene. This isn't leftist. <laughs> like, but, uh, you know, I mean, I there's stuff in this series that is very obviously leftist. I mean, the Second Life episode in particular is about... Um, Essentially, uh, Second Life is like a capitalist hell version of a virtual world. <laughs> like, it's deeply marketized in a really unhealthy way, and we really get into that throughout the episode. So, mm. there's like stuff that's leftist on its face. But I mean, just uh, talking about like video game preservation, I mean, it's not something that generates profit. It's not something that particularly helps capitalists. It's, I mean, mm. the project mm. of archives in general is like a very humanist project. And it's one of the reasons why I think archives are uh, not exactly as valued in our uh, economy or society as they probably should be. Is uh, You're kidding. You're telling me that the our society doesn't value the archive, the uh, the, the keeping of old work. Yeah, can um, you believe it? <laughs> I'm shocked. I'm I'm utterly shocked. Um, my friend Mark will be will be excited to hear. My, Mark, my friend Mark Normandin will be excited to hear about this. As his uh, his persistent hobby horse is um, how uh, digital gaming is uh, is just a con to get rid of the archive. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, yeah. I mean, I the. He he practices what he preaches because he wanted me to play uh, uh, the the Xenoblade Chronicles, and so he sent me a physical Switch copy of it. Um, <laughs> the, the, the man lives his lives his lives his uh, truth, but um, uh, yeah, no, that that totally makes sense. Like I I guess um, thinking about the archive as like a particularly leftist project because it does not uh, generate profit is something that. If I hadn't, if I have thought about it for before, it has slipped my mind since. It is a, it's a really interesting way of thinking about it. It's worth saying that um, not our, all archives or archival activity is created equal when it comes to ethics. I mean, sometimes archives can be part of a conscious state project to exert control over people because you know if you do have, um, I mean. The reason why states have archives, like one of the big reasons is that to have documentation of the past can be a powerful thing. I mean, if you have records of like land ownership, for example, that you can enforce, I mean, so not all archival activity is created equal, but in general, uh, I'm pretty positive on it. Yeah. I know, and and you know we are all friends of Wendig here. We all agree that archive.org was really <laughs> oh god. <laughs> and I mean, when it comes to like archival activity on art, culture, media, uh, video games, I mean, I think that stuff is pretty much an unalloyed good. I don't see that stuff being really used as a cudgel against any anyone. You know, I can't believe you wouldn't let Chuck have his twelve dollars. Uh, <laughs> so cruel. Yeah. Um, okay, just, no, that, that's a good answer. Yeah, I would say to add on to that, um, right, so the reason why maybe we're looking at virtual worlds specifically, uh, for me, there's two really compelling things uh, that work together, uh, which is that uh, virtual environments and these like online games and stuff are basically like pocket universes, right? They're kind of built to be like another version of reality, virtual reality, right? Um, yeah. Which means that they're not only, uh, you know, 
cultural products of our time, which means that they reflect certain values, uh, you know, depending on the environment they were created in. Uh, and you can see that a lot with Second Life, for instance. <laughs> um, but they can also serve, you know, kind of alternatively as a vision of another world, right? It's the developer's chance to imagine what a world could be like uh, if it were built differently. So for Habitat, for example, uh, it was a world where obviously you don't need, you know, to be working a job to you know, survive. There, there's still money involved, but actually in the new Neo Habitat version, they've actually created passive income. So oh, wow. your character will just always accumulate uh, up to a certain amount of gold. And obviously you don't need like bread or food or, you know, everyone's given shelter, for example, everyone is given a home space. Everyone has their turf. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the turfs. So, you know, the virtual environment like that is an opportunity for people to create a different way of living. And I don't know as a leftist how many times you've heard the phrase, a better world is possible. You know, stop me if you've heard it a couple times. <laughs> stop me if you've heard this one before. <laughs> um, but, you know, virtual environments are a great de facto example of that. It's another world and it is mm. in many ways possible or not. You know, you can look at that. And, you know, it would be pretty fascinating to imagine, like, if some kind of uh, leftist collective came together with the expertise and resources to create a large-scale virtual world, what would they do with it? Because, like, you can essentially run experiments in planned economies in a virtual world, and EVE Online does this. They have a... Uh, PhD economist on staff who uh, helps them regulate the virtual economy and ends up collecting data that they send over to academic uh, researchers to play around with. And so, oh, fun. yeah, they're actually, you know, I mean, you could imagine trying to create some kind of like Soviet style planned economy or something in a virtual world and see how it goes. I mean, obviously, it's never going to be an exact one to one to real life because, you know, in real life, you need to eat to live, for example, you need shelter to survive and all that stuff. But there are ways that you can experiment with social and economic systems in a virtual world at a large scale quickly and iterate on it that could be useful. Hmm. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, cool. So let me ask you this. Um, and this is, this is another big question, but I think, I think it, it speaks to sort of something more about um, – leftist thought that, I don't know, resonates with me and, and I know doesn't always resonate with others, but it strikes me that it may resonate with you. Um, so one of the things that I feel is true about uh, leftist thought is that you have to, um, you have to understand the aesthetic uh, to really, I don't know, properly, mm -hmm. mm, I'm trying to think of a way to say this, that isn't uh, mean-spirited, to properly sort of um <laughs> uh, let me let me say it like this the the um the purpose of the uh, or the the existence of the aesthetic is uh necessary within um an understanding of leftist thought like you, you need to understand what aesthetic thought is you need to have some sort of engagement with it in order to really get um like a a, a full uh leftist community. Someone has to be doing that. There has to be the anime uh, uh, um, appraiser, uh, so to speak. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but, you know, w what actually counts as 
aesthetic thinking is um, really muddied right now. It's something that I um, am hoping to to kind of like pick out a little bit this year as as part of like a you know a, an arbitrary project um, on the podcast. And and to that end, I've been meaning to ask people this. So to set the question up, you know, we see a lot on um, Twitter. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, I, Mitchell, are you on Twitter? I don't know if you are. I am. Yeah, I'm at Mitchell Zemmel. Okay, and uh, of course, uh, I will let everyone say their Twitter at the end, I promise. <laughs> nice. Um, no, but God, I mean, it's, why, why else are we here? Uh, but, um, but like, uh, you know, we see a lot on Twitter this, this sort of, like, this impulse to, uh, um, how to say this, like, um, flatten art into its creators, right? Mm. And, and there's something to this. Like, of course, you don't, like, we don't have to you don't have to defend uh, Ezra Pound, right? Like you can even like the poet. I, I have a, I have a friend who did her whole, uh, one of the, one of the best leftists I know, wonderful union organizer, and just like a, an ultra smart woman, uh, Jen Phyllis, who did her PhD on um, Pound. And you know, the, the conclusion to that was this guy Pound is a, is an unapologetic fascist. <laughs> he just, <laughs> he just is like, that's, that's just what it is. Um, but it's also this way of saying, like, how could you possibly engage with this? This person is an unapologetic fascist. And the answer almost always is, well, it's important to understand it artistically or aesthetically. And then there's also the the bent of, you know, uh, can we please stop saying that the Winter Soldier isn't a Best Picture nominee or, or whatever, right? Like those those things, and they'll have four screenshots. Mm-hmm. And the idea there being like, I liked it, so it must be artistically good. And, and the aesthetic question being like, okay, is that, is that enough? Is it enough to just like something? Um, and I think a lot of the, the, the kind of like, uh, uh, inaccurate, not inaccuracies, but, um, mm, uh, the ways in which this kind of just gets blurred, right? The, 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 the uncareful way we're all talking about art online. And I, I count myself in this as well. Um, we're just all being like in, incautious uh, with our with our phrasing and and uh, inexact. Um, I think it boils down to like this question of like what counts as aesthetics and what counts as um, just like personal taste. Um, and so, I'm interested. Where do you guys think art or aesthetics or whatever you happen to want to call it um, enters into video games. Like, obviously there's a place where it enters in and there's a place where it doesn't necessarily have to be there. Like we don't have to make the case that Pac-Man is a brilliant art, uh, on its face. (laughs) Although I suppose we could. Um, but where do we, where do we begin to make this case? Where does this sort of enter into video games and where does it, I mean, or the archive or some version of both and, and where does sort of like our own personal taste take over? Wow, that's a good question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> well, as an animator, I guess I have the authority here to speak on art. <laughs> that's right, as, as, that's right. <laughs> right. Um, but when I think of games as art, um, it's funny because obviously there's like that genre of like quote-unquote art games where it's not really about having fun gameplay, but maybe just <laughs> making the player feel kind of sad or affected. Um, And I actually always think about this old game I played on Newgrounds once um, called Baby's Dream of Dying Worlds. And it was incredibly crude, very easy to play through, but was such a interesting, like, it was one of the first times 
growing up that I experienced like apocalypse, like a dying world. Mm. And it was incredibly <laughs> powerful uh, for just like how dumb all of the sprites looked. Um, but I just like was sitting at my computer just like, oh my God. <laughs> so I think games absolutely, you know, obviously they like step into that world of, you know, art and aesthetics. And I would say my favorite game of all time personally is called Cubivore. It was this game on the GameCube that I think was originally going to come out on the N64. And it is incredibly bizarre, mostly in like the translation feels incredibly broken, but mm. intentional at the same time. Like there's obvious puns being made, but it's in such a foreign kind of way. Um, that it really charms me, and uh, I, I don't have much to say other than if you can get a copy of it, which you probably can't, you can probably find a ROM for it somewhere. Um, and Out there on some sort of dolphin emulator. Exactly, right. Um, and as far as where that line is between, you know, something just being, oh, I liked playing this game, so it's artful, and this game was not fun to play, so it's trash. Um, I, it's definitely not that clear cut. Um, I think you can look at all games in that sense, like from an artistic perspective, um, just like in the same way, like anytime somebody puts pencil to paper, you could say like, oh, that's a pretty good drawing you did, or like, that's a great piece of art. And it's just like, no, I was like, doodling here or like I, I could <laughs> I, I lost track of the conversation so I'm just like drawing a stick figure um, right 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 and so thinking about intentionality it's not the end-all be-all but I guess I would try and think about like if the game is art what is the art expressing what is it an act of uh, the like mm -hmm. what kind of creative act is it um, whereas if you look at something like, say something like Farmville <laughs> on Facebook or whatever, okay. um, not a very artful game as far as I know, unless there was like some like double level, like it was like a Lars von Trier kind of thing. <laughs> and it's supposed to like teach you this lesson um, that just like went over everyone's heads. Um, I would probably not call Farmville art in that sense. Okay. Okay, yeah, okay, I, I get it. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think maybe one of the reasons that Farmville doesn't quite rise to the occasion, uh, just like, you know, uh, following your answer there, is it's it's not... Uh, a professor of mine used to say, um, uh, and I, I should tip my... I should actually just say who it is, because it, it reveals some of my, like, thoughts about intentionality, if you know his work. Uh, but uh, the Walter Michaels, or Walter Ben Michaels, who's at uh, UIC, where I got my PhD, um, he, uh, if he didn't like something, often student work, um, or someone who was coming to speak, he would say it wasn't just wrong, it was not even wrong. Mm. Um, and so that was the worst compliment you could, or compliment, right. that was the worst thing you could hear from him. Right. Um, that's like, so, oh, sorry, I was going to say. No, no, please. That's like uh, the needle drop giving it a not good instead of a zero, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, like, it, it is like... Um, you know, it's one of those things where it is not, it's not just like a, a lack of um, artistic merit. It's like they aren't 
even going for it. Mm-hmm. It's like the, the even the question about it. It's 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 such a utilitarian kind of game that like to ask what it's doing aesthetically feels like a, a, a kind of it's missing the point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, Farmville's more of a tool of psychological manipulation than uh, a game that you interact with. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of, uh, and I mean, I should probably make some sort of distinction in my own mind between proponent and addict of um, gotcha games during um, the pandemic. Uh, they have been, they've been very good to me. During the pandemic. <laughs> they have helped me, helped help me focus on mundane tasks that I am addicted to. Um, on the other hand, I don't necessarily know if that makes them art. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. Well, for me, talking about games as art, I mean, I think that there's a number of different conversations you could have along those lines. But if I want to say something that I think is interesting is the aspect of games that is uh, performative on the part of the player. So, mm. you know, unlike a book or a movie or whatever, I mean, it's obvious to say, but games are interactive. And I think it's particularly interesting when a game affords you the space to express yourself rather uniquely. Um, You know, because you can look at a game as art, but you could also look at play of a game as art. Mm -hmm. You could Mm -hmm. look at the way that a particular player engages with a game as a form of almost like dance, like an art form similar to dance or performance art. And, uh, you know, that's kind of interesting. I guess that fits in with the series we've made as like we're taking this bottom up approach to these games. We're not talking to the people who created these games. We're talking to people who came along and interacted with them in a particularly interesting way to learn right. about how fans have taken them further or or done interesting things with them or built up like organization or culture around them. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it, it, there's a there's a sort of like um, there's there's an almost uh, democratic in the in the uh, or, you know sort of original Greek sense uh, mm-hmm. like a populist sort of perspective of of how um, how art ought to work in there. Like where you where you say something like, yeah, like this is this, this whole thing is is not just about like who made it and why they are interesting it's about who found it and what they made out of it Mm -hmm. exactly yeah 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 no that that's interesting i i guess like that's something that that definitely i would say falls out of my own analysis too often i I found this when i was writing that like a lot of what i found interesting about video games was that like basically what the interaction with fan groups and um uh like you know reviewers and then people responding to to those kinds of things like why that was like you know what why the interaction between those groups was so i don't know specifically intense or often um, productive it, or if if not like reactive also or reactionary also mm-hmm. but like i think part of that is is what you're saying there in that like a big part of the aesthetic is the, um, and especially in games, is the urge to respond. It's the, the sort of like call to response. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's interesting. I like that. Um, well, I've kept you an hour and a half now, so let me let me uh, let you go by by uh, saying um, your show is on Means TV. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it is called. I know what it's called. You just have to... <laughs> it's it's <laughs> better called... Coming, better coming from... Yeah, here. So the show's called Preserving Worlds. Uh, all six episodes are unlocked now on Means TV. They are free for everyone to access. 
If you are a subscriber to Means TV, you'll also get some bonus content uh, where Derek and I basically revisited each of the games and just, uh, for lack of better words, vibed in them. Nice, yeah, uh, nice. talking about the intentionality and the care that we've taken in editing, <laughs> that's not present in the bonus features. Uh, the, Listen, that's why they're bonus features. That we, the, people watch the bonus features to watch like Scorsese just like talking. Yeah, That's exactly. Like, have you seen yeah. Have you seen this newspaper? <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. We're like, uh, like for example, we did a. We call them bonus expeditions. We did one in Doom where we, uh, you know, in the Doom episode, we didn't talk about like online gameplay of Doom very much. So in the bonus feature, we just basically live like went into Doom like fan servers and went and checked out all the different ways that people play Doom multiplayer. And oh, wow. uh, I got my ass kicked in Deathmatch, <laughs> and we. Uh, I, you're brave to even do Deathmatch. I mean, like. Oh, Oh, it was scary. Oh. We didn't even know how to like respond to them in the chat log. We didn't know how to type. <laughs> Death yeah, no, I, I one of the things that I ended up writing about in I have a chapter on on first person shooters that starts with a, a fairly long um, look at Doom. And one of the things that I focused on really early was um, this video by uh, Carl Jobst. If you if you know uh, him, he's a YouTuber. Um, he did a video discussing how the the hangar speed run was beaten. Mm -hmm. um, the hangar speed run of, I think, nine seconds was, it was either nine to eight <laughs> or eight to seven. And like, it, it seemed like, like someone, someone suggested it to me. I think it was my friend Ari suggested it to me. And I was like, this must be the most boring video of all time. Like the 20 minute video on this. And it was like, I started watching it and I was immediately gripped. Um, if anyone's listening, like if anyone wants a recommendation on the YouTube to watch, like I would say that this is, this is one. Mm -hmm. um, but like, you know, one of the things about it was uh, the the speed record was broken because people realized via deathmatch because they just absolutely needed to get faster. Hmm. They looked in the code and realized that you could double input by going <laughs> uh, it, like the, mm -hmm. the way that the, the way that the code worked is that uh, if you went diagonally, it just added that was like one input, and then you went forward. It added the two inputs together, so you could oh. go double fast if you traveled in like these fast diagonal lines. Uh, left and right, so wow. yeah, no, like that's the level of knowledge you have to have to compete in deathmatch, and then just watching it, I, <laughs> I, you're braver than me. Like I'm, I'm happy to jump into like Call of Duty or PUBG or Fortnite or whatever, and also get creamed. But like deathmatch, I feel would be just like. I don't know. Like it feels almost like elemental. Well, I'm glad we yeah. have that like excuse to fall back on now. Like, oh, like of course we lost. Like we didn't know about the diagonal inputs. Yeah, I was gonna <laughs> say like uh, that's why I got my ass kicked. That's the only reason. Yeah, I wasn't doing diagonals. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they were all moving twice as fast yeah. as you. How could you possibly? And my controller was... fell out, and the sun was in my eye. <laughs> I didn't get enough sleep that day. Uh, but yeah, it was uh, scary because we ended up in a duel situation. Like it was just like a Doom Fight Club one on one back to back kind of thing. And I, <laughs> yeah, I got smoked. But uh, oh man. The other thing I have to say, because it is like out of the bonus episodes we did, like if you subscribe to Means TV and you watch any of them, watch the Doom one, because we accidentally stumbled into a persistent social virtual world being run through Doom. <laughs> Whoa. It was crazy. Like someone took this uh, Mega Man 8 battle something or other. There's like a Mega Man themed deathmatch mod that is very like very pretty. It's all pixel art and everything. But someone took that mod and further modded it into something they called Community Hotel, where 
you're playing as all these like uh, Mega Man characters and you're just going through a hotel where there are different rooms that have been created for each like actual member of this like niche like Doom community. And Whoa. you can just go in there and chat with people. And there's a fishing component of it where you can collect fish. Like, and yeah. there's a jukebox <laughs> where you can play like Homestuck music and like plastic, uh, love. plastic love and stuff. It is wow. it is beautiful. And it's you can just log into it on uh, the Doom fan servers using Doom Seeker, and it completely blew our minds to just find that. That is unbelievable. Okay, I mean, <laughs> I'm sold. Uh, that sounds that sounds impressive. <laughs> um, and uh, where can we find you two? Sure. So I'm on Twitter. Uh, my at is uh, at uh, Derek L Murphy. So uh, feel free to follow me if you want to. <laughs> yeah. My uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram as at Mitchell Zemmel. Instagram is more for like I'll put like some animation stuff up there. Uh, if I ever have that to share. And uh, Twitter <laughs> is just for um, bad thoughts. But, you know, if you want to give it a shot, <laughs> feel free. <laughs> um, and I would like to say for Means TV that... Um, so Means TV is subscription-based, and you can subscribe for $10 a month, and everyone's always like, oh, socialists are asking for a subscription. But, like, it's actually a very honest way for them to run. I mean, they're not taking any, like, venture capitalist money or anything like that. It's all just through, uh, I guess, the contributions of viewers like you, yeah. right? But also... Yeah, it's just it's, it's, it's Sesame Street. Yeah, exactly. And the thing that also that they do that's worth saying is that if you can't afford the $10 a month, then which is fair, then they operate on a sliding scale. If you get in touch with them, they can uh, give you a lower rate, and they're happy to. And it even can go down to zero if you need it to. So, wow. uh, yeah, that's do great. that. Yeah, so that is um, contact at means.media. Uh, no means testing required, uh, <laughs> pun intended. <laughs> Means testing? No, means testing. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so I can even I can even subscribe to Means TV if I make under or over fifty thousand dollars a year. <laughs> Believe it or not, <laughs> unbelievable. No matter how many uh, children you have or uh, properties you own. Mm -hmm. Weird. Okay. I mean, I, I I have some Pell grants. I need to you know, and and so <laughs> I, right. I have some uh, you know, just some some some. Uh, some scholarships that uh, I've I've wrangled uh, off the gray market, so hopefully I can use those to get even better. Today. Right. Well, if you have um, you know started a new business in a historically <laughs> impoverished area, uh, coming out of school, um, you can also do anywhere from zero to ten dollars a month. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow, the you know what? No wonder uh, socialists are falling in love with Joe Biden. <laughs> um, but no, no, that's great. Yeah, I, I there's there's a ton of good stuff coming out of Means. Um, obviously, uh, you know we've had Left Trigger on here. We've had um, uh, Brian's been on here a couple of times. I don't think we've gotten Brett yet, but I I did I did a live show with them at one point, and uh, of course we now we've had you on here as well. Mm -hmm. So like, yeah, I, I, there's like there's a ton of really interesting stuff happening at Means. I think it is absolutely worth your time to to be a subscriber. So. Um, yeah, and and and, and uh, what Derek says is absolutely right. Like, uh, subscription services have been, uh, and I don't just say this because we have a Patreon too, but like, you know, the subscription services are uh, classically a sort of um, way for smaller businesses and smaller um, uh, 
less less let's say less profit profit friendly ideologies to uh, to thrive. So uh, you know, do, do what you can. Yeah, I mean, you know, the servers cost money. So, like, if it was free to run Means TV, then uh, it would probably be free to access. But unfortunately, we do need to continue to exist in a capitalist society. Labor and servers uh, require money. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. You, you do deserve to be paid. That's like <laughs> part part of what Means TV believes. I will so. make sure to forward that to Nick. Let him hear that. <laughs> no, um, I kid. I kid. One thing also that I would like to say is that if you want to actually see like uh, film work or video content or whatever you want to call it created by people who don't have rich uncles with connections, Means TV is your premier source for that. That is true. Now, is there anywhere we can see some more uncle content? Mm. <laughs> Maybe uh, Quibi. Oops, uh, they shut down. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, just the... I, I I admire what Means does in terms of just like being open to trying stuff, like just the the way the the variety of stuff on there is just really cool. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, cool. Well, uh, come back again anytime. I'm I'm really excited to see what you guys do. I'm excited to watch all of them. Uh, like I was saying earlier off air, I have watched uh, the new Habitat one and I've skimmed through a couple of the others, but like. Uh, I'm really, really looking forward to just sitting down with these and giving them more time because they really are. I mean, it is just a treat. It's like um, it, it's the one. So one of the things that I have always said about my show is that I enjoy making it very much. Um, and I'm happy there are a bunch of people out there that like listening to it uh, who aren't like me because I can't stand interview shows. I don't like <laughs> them. I don't like listening to them. I love making them. I don't like listening to them. Um, but I really, really enjoyed watching your interview show. Like, it, there was something about it that was very gripping, whether it be the visual or the content. And it just, it, 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 is, it is a pleasure to watch. So, um, you know, archival stuff is important. Archival stuff in video games is fraught and interesting and kind of sad in some ways, but very beautiful in others. So uh, definitely check it out. Um, yeah. And... Uh, yeah. Um, please come back soon. Yeah. Thanks for being Thank here. you very much. I had a wonderful time uh, on here. Oh, great. Yeah. I, I'm kind of feeling the incentive now to put this out on a weekly schedule now so that we can come on more often. <laughs> oh, yeah. Cool. Well, I'm really looking forward to having you on for, um, <laughs> for Derek and Mitch play Doom uh, 75 uh, yeah. <laughs> during the busy season of making the, you know, season seven. Yeah, we'll be putting um, out like 10 second videos every week. <laughs> <laughs> it, I mean, you, you know what? They, they say no content is bad content. I think that's, I think that's how the saying goes. Um, we'll, just, we'll just go with that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, please. You don't even have to put out new content to come on. We'd love to just have you back to talk talk aesthetics and stuff like that it would be great okay, thank you yeah thank you it was really really fun talking to you and being on the show like this was a great oh, time yeah. so yeah, yeah pres no. really appreciate you having us on absolutely well i'll talk to you guys soon yeah definitely hey thanks for listening to no cartridge if you'd like to support us further please consider going to patreon.com slash no cartridge or for a one-time donation paypal.me slash hegelbon h-e-g-e-l-b-o-n it's really, really helpful for all of us to be able to support uh, the many people who make the show, uh, you know, myself included, but also our producers and various co-hosts um, and, and writers and artists. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to like, subscribe, share, any of those things that would let other people get the quality video game analysis that you've grown accustomed to.